Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and to open the Word of God. Uh, always a joy and a privilege to look at God's Word together. Uh, last week, we looked at a passage in Mark with Austin uh, about the widow giving her offering, her might. That is famously, or maybe infamously, considered a passage about giving. But we saw last week that the main point of that passage is anything but that. Uh, The willingness of the widow to give her last might is important to that brief story, but we saw really the focus of that passage in Mark is Jesus' indictment on the corrupt and greedy nature of false religion. Uh, We saw the kind of religiosity that masquerades as devotion to God. Devouring widows for unjust gain. As Austin and I were talking this week, he he thought that it would be beneficial for us this week to take a look at giving. So that we don't just look at the widow's might and think, well, that's not about giving. But that we could look at what God's word has to say about generosity and about our giving and what that has to do with our worship. This morning, in contrast to the greed and corruption of the temple system in Jesus' day, the the dry bones of false religion, we will see this morning the beauty and the selflessness of Christian generosity in God's church. Truly the blessed generosity of true religion. That which reflects God's generosity toward us as his people. Crosswoods, we live in a cultural atmosphere of greed and self-gain. Ever before our eyes, as you scroll late into the night, are influencers who tell you how to invest or how to get into lucrative side gigs. Those are probably the ads more so. Or gurus who convince you to go to garage sales and sell baseball cards for a profit and to get rich and then invest more. Even the Dave Ramsey types who can help us to indeed steward and save and stash better than we did before. All of which, credit to the benefit that they sometimes can be, They all feed the guiding principle in our society that money is power. Money is power. We exist in a culture that is toxic to genuine Christian generosity. But lest we blame our culture, our own hearts are prone to an insidiously inward focus when it comes to our money. That we put our hope in crypto or real estate or whatever the en vogue investment is these days. We are always looking for financial wisdom and opportunities. And we'll admit, we spend money on our own pleasures and go out with friends and spend a little more than maybe we meant to. And even in the, the hard work, that goes into that always seemingly distant dream that is your career. You can't wait until money isn't a problem anymore, right? We are, in a way that's got sheep's clothing on it, fixated on the acquirement and the security 
of wealth. And yet the Bible, timeless truth that it is, speaks with clarity and confronts our this-worldly greed, our chasing after the short-term security and riches. Consider 1 Timothy 6. Paul issues this warning. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Consider maybe the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All helpful instruction on contentment and thinking for eternal riches. Well, the Bible also speaks plainly and very positively on wealth, instructing us, uh, like in Proverbs 3, 9, very simply, honor the Lord with your wealth. Or the words of our Savior himself, quoted in Acts 20, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So this morning, let's explore what it looks like to honor the Lord with our riches, or to Be blessed as we give. Now, this is always the case, but especially this morning. We need to make sure the goal is changed and convicted and renewed hearts. I want to be clear because my concern this morning isn't ultimately your credit cards or your Venmo account, pay for donuts, or your budget It's your heart. It's your heart. You're in a season where you're developing convictions and developing a lifestyle that will last you a lifetime. This morning, let's look at God's design for generosity and the great good that it is among God's people. I call this the wealth of generosity. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. This morning we'll be in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So it's a lot of ground to cover. And we'll read as we go. We'll cover select portions and summarize other parts of these two chapters. And we'll make our way through and see the wealth of generosity. But before we begin, let's pray because we need the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We are overwhelmed by your kindness every time we approach your word. That it is your very truth revealed to us. And so we ask your spirit's help to illumine our minds and open our hearts. Grow our hearts now, Lord, to be generous as you have been with us. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do this morning is to draw out from these two chapters... Five principles of Christian generosity. Five truths that conform our hearts to the generosity of God. 
And in order to do that, first I need to bring you in on the situation in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the story, the background on this. Now, Paul, as we know, has had a rather tenuous history with the Corinthian church. He has written two times, both 1 Corinthians and a severe letter that we don't know about. He's also visited three times. Each time he has offered correction and rebuke and counsel to a church, the church in Corinth, that loves Jesus but is riddled with sin and error and division, even over following Paul or somebody else. And now here, as Paul writes yet again here in 2 Corinthians, he is having to defend his apostleship, even with these Corinthian believers and some among them who have questioned his ministry. And he's showing this church not only the legitimacy of his own ministry, but also the purity and the integrity of his love for them in Christ and his desire for them to be formed into the image of Christ. And here in the middle of this letter, in these two chapters, Paul is encouraging these believers to reflect what he believes about them, and that is a genuine heart of true faith and love for others. And he wants them to show it by their generosity, their giving contribution to an offering for the Jerusalem church. Paul sees this as flowing out of a heart of true faith, and it's a heart that, despite all of their sin, the church in Corinth, he is convinced they indeed have a true heart of faith. Whether because of persecution or famine, the church in Jerusalem is facing financial difficulty. And so Paul is doing the thing that in Galatians 2.10, the Jerusalem elders had urged him to do. And they said, Paul, remember the poor. And so he is collecting an offering for the Jerusalem church from the churches in both Macedonia and Achaia. Two regions that we see often mentioned in the Bible But to be clear, Macedonia includes churches like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And Achaia, the main church there, is the church in Corinth. And so Paul is collecting this offering from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. And we'll see that in these two chapters, that he has these two churches alongside each other, asking them both to contribute This offering that he's gathering is mentioned in several other of Paul's letters, notably in Galatians, but also in Romans. At the end of Romans, Paul actually is saying, I am bringing the Jerusalem offering to Jerusalem. Pray for me that I would make it there. And so we know that this offering was successfully completed. It's an offering that Paul has been gathering with the help of Titus and other church leaders, as we'll see in a second, and it's gathered over the course of a couple years. I think when we think of offering, we think of passing a plate or a basket or those little red things in morning church. Uh, and we think of a one-time, every-week sort of thing. But this is an offering that's been gathered over the course of a couple years. And here in this text, we see the interplay between the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. Look at the beginning of chapter 8. Paul talks about the example of the Macedonian church. Look at verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Stop there. So Paul's giving the Macedonian churches as an example to the Corinthian church, that they are giving even out of their need, their extreme poverty, overflowing with joy, is what Paul says. Chrysostom An old preacher says of the irony we see in verse 4 that they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in this offering. He says, they did the begging, not Paul. And yet Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8-9 is begging the Corinthian church to be generous. And then look at chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, and we see more of this interplay between the two churches uh, start in verse 1 for some, for some context. And now it is superfluous for me to write, a, write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you, to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. And so Paul had encouraged the Macedonian churches who did step up. He had encouraged them toward generosity on account of the church in Corinth and the other Achaean churches. Now, how so? Because the timeline doesn't seem to work out, right? This is an offering that the Corinthian church had begun to gather and had expressed desire in participating a year before Paul is writing this letter. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. And Paul says, and in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. So there's some history here with the Corinthian church. They had begun this offering, but had not yet completed it. If we looked at 1 Corinthians 16, the first four verses there, we see Paul gives some ready instructions about how to gather such an offering, to regularly put aside money for this offering. And so Paul had used the Corinthians' desire to encourage Macedonia to give. And now here in our text, Paul doesn't want them to come up empty on that promise. Here in these two chapters, Paul is urging the Corinthians to fulfill their generosity, fulfill their desire that began even a year ago. In a sense, To use an anachronism, he's saying, put your money where your mouth is. Now, for integrity's sake, Paul is sending trustworthy messengers to help with collection. Look at chapter 8, verse 16. He's sending Titus. He says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. He's sending Titus, someone that we know in the Bible is a trustworthy brother and does much ministry on behalf of and with Paul. 
And as we see in verses 16 through 24, we won't go through it all, but we see that Paul is sending along with Titus two other brothers. So it's in a convoy of three people. Uh, One in verse 18, if you see there, uh, one who is, quote, famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Someone who's a preacher and who's preached the gospel faithfully. Some think it's maybe Apollos. And then a second brother, or really the third, including Titus, in verse 22, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many manners, in many matters. So someone who's trusted with this kind of offering, no doubt, an accountant. Now look at, though, the important reason for these three brothers in verse 20 of chapter 8. Paul says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered to us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. You see, these three brothers are an important go-between between Paul and the Corinthian church for the sake of integrity and for the sake of conflict of interest. The very fact that Paul is the one urging them to give, even here in this letter. And so this is a big picture view of what's happening here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this offering being collected for the Jerusalem church. Now, principles about generosity and about church and about integrity and partnership in ministry and so much more abound in these two chapters. But this morning, I want to draw our hearts simply to five principles about Christian generosity. Five principles about Christian generosity. I want to look at God's plan, God's design for generosity and the great good that it brings to God's people. The multiplicity of effect that generosity has. The wealth of generosity, the true wealth of generosity. The first principle that we see in these two chapters is this, that generosity flows from a heart that is given to the Lord. Generosity flows from a heart that is given to the Lord. We must first understand that generosity is coming from a heart that is itself first surrendered to God. You see, a Christian heart is characteristically a generous heart. So many people in the world can emulate this kind of generosity, giving millions even to charity and doing much earthly good. But that which pleases God comes from a generous heart of someone whose entire life and entire heart is first itself given to the Lord. Before you give any kind of money, you must give your heart. As Paul prompts the Corinthian church to finish what they've started with this offering, he helps them to understand that doing so would be an extension of their faith, a natural consequence. This would be an act of genuine Christian love toward fellow believers, fellow believers they haven't even met before. 
And as we've already seen, Paul uses the Macedonians' example in the beginning of chapter 8 to encourage the Corinthians to give. But look specifically at the inner workings of the Macedonians' generosity in verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5. Paul understands the Macedonians' generosity this way. He says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see, the Macedonians, in their exemplary giving, they first gave themselves their own lives to the Lord, and then they gave their money to Paul's offering. You see, if your heart has first been given over in submission to God, fully surrendered to follow Christ, taking up your cross and following him, generous giving of your material possessions is a relatively simple step. It's a natural progression from there. Look at verses 7 and 8, the following verses. And Paul shows us the fullness of that logic. But as you excel in everything, Paul says, in faith, in speech, and in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. This act of grace, Paul calls it, would be on par with their excellence in other areas of faith. Notice how graciously he's speaking of the work of God in these believers' lives, if you know anything about First and Second Corinthians. And Paul is saying that genuineness of faith and love, show it now in this area, in this act of grace. You see, their participation is would-be proof that they indeed have a genuine love for others around them, flowing from true faith. Christian generosity, like all other Christian virtue, flows from a heart that is already surrendered to God. This is the logic of the entire New Testament. Uh, Look over at James. Turn over to James. This is a passage that Jeremy preached a a couple weeks ago, but I think it's helpful to look at again just for this couple verses. James 2, verse 15. James says there, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We know what James is saying there is the kind of faith that is genuine, is the kind of faith that actually works. Look over at 1 John 3. 1 John 3, we see a similar truth. 1 John 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Friends, generosity or any other Christian virtue for that matter, is not a requirement for salvation, 
Salvation is all of grace, not of our own doing. But here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we see that generosity is certainly a sign of a redeemed life. It is a beating pulse. It's a flickering torch for faith. It's the porch light that's on. There's somebody home and it's true faith. You see, any manner of philanthropy, magnanimous giving, and charity work, even giving regularly to the church, does not count one penny on the balance sheet of heaven as to your worthiness to be saved. Yet when flowing from a heart that is first and foremost itself given to the Lord, that kind of generosity is an all but sure sign of God's transforming work in your life. There's a second principle we need to learn from this two chapters. It's this, that generosity is motivated by the generous grace of Christ. Generosity is motivated by the generous grace of Christ. As Paul instructs these Corinthian believers to demonstrate the genuineness of their love by their generosity, he points out the motivation for this generosity. And it's very simply the generosity of the grace of Christ. The generosity of the grace of Christ in the gospel. Look at chapter 8, verse 9, a key verse that you should commit to memory or underline or highlight in your Bible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul is saying, Corinthians, you know firsthand the riches of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know his generosity to win your salvation, to pay the ultimate price to atone for your sin. Jesus, who was as God rich, as God ruled over all things, and to him all glory and honor was due, this Jesus became poor. He set aside his rights and prerogatives as God and became a man, still being God, but in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, then died a sinner's death and paid the penalty for your sin, generously so. All your sins, past, present, and future, are paid for by the generous grace of Christ. And Paul is saying, by his becoming poor in this way, you and I became rich. You and I might find what Ephesians 3.8 calls unsearchable riches in Christ. Turn to Philippians 2. This is a passage actually that UCLA will be in this coming Friday. So I won't give too much away, but you know this truth. It's a beautiful truth. Philippians 2. We need to look at this because it states this truth so clearly. 
2, verse 5, Paul is instructing the Philippian church toward humility of mind and unity. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Number 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of the generous grace of Christ, we are moved toward the same kind of self-sacrificing generosity. This, what's mine is yours, sort of mentality. This voluntary moving from rich to poor for the sake of someone else. This is the motivation for Christian generosity. Gratitude to God for his generosity for the grace of Christ toward us in the gospel. That's the motivation for generosity. The generous grace of Christ. A third truth we need to see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you can turn back there, is that generosity is supplied abundantly by God. Generosity is abundantly supplied by God. One natural, I think, question that I often get when we talk about generosity and we talk about giving in college ministry and young adult ministry is this. People say, yeah, okay, I get it. I, I should give generously. I understand that. I should give to the church and to others. But... I'm a poor college student. Where do I get this money that you speak of? Right? Amen, right? Or another version, can't I just wait until I actually make money? And yes and amen, there are good practical things to consider in how this might look right now. Maybe for you it's a conversation with your parents about how you'd like to use the money that they're giving you or lending you in this season. And maybe that conversation, that asking permission to give to the church, even just a few dollars, is an example or a witness to them. You never know. But maybe for you, it's thinking through how you are using your money, how you are spending your money, and where there maybe is room for you to give up something small that you feel so entitled to in this season. A cup of coffee or boba, if that's you, to the side of the room. What Paul shows us in these two chapters, I believe, frees us from being bound by this question. See, once we've pondered the practical aspects and the balance sheets rightly, thinking biblically about Christian generosity isn't to only ask the question of constraint or to dwell on the idea of our current limitations in this season of life as if it's a philosophical question. You have money or you don't. It is to, thinking biblically about this, is to wake 
up to the truth of God's abundant provision in your life in so many ways, spiritual and material. And beyond that, to see the purpose for which that blessing is brought into your life, as much as or as little as, if you see it that way, as he has seen fit to do right now in your life. It's been raining a whole lot these past few days, and I think some of you may see that as a curse, and some of you may see that as a blessing, whether it's white noise for your study or it's hindrance for you to get to the valley. Every time it rains, it's a reminder that God's abundant provision is on both the just and the unjust. God's abundant provision to give us green and to give us vegetables and life. It's a reminder that points to, as his people, for us, all of the ways that God provides for us, even more specifically. I hope that as it rains, and it will this week, you're reminded of the abundant provision in your life that God brings. The peace that completes this puzzle of how we can, even now, have hearts of generosity and give even of what little we may have as broke college students or as interns, interning so that you can intern some more or staff people with young families and mouths to feed and seminarians with so many mouths to feed. I mean, books to buy. All of us, all with our silly reasons in the world to not give just yet in this season. The key that unlocks this whole thing is an awareness of the generosity of God toward you. This morning we've already pondered God's generosity toward us in the grace of Christ. Eternal riches, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Well, here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, what's in view here is a fullness, a broadness to the abundance of God's provision. That is indeed spiritual, but it's also material. I know that sounds a little scary, but look at chapter 8, verse 14. Paul says there, your abundance at the present time, he's speaking to the Corinthians, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. What Paul is saying here to this rich church in Corinth, monetarily rich, is that they should consider how much God has indeed blessed them. The beauty of this picture here in 2 Corinthians 8, a poor church in extreme poverty and a rich church with so much, both giving generously. In the middle of chapter 9, Paul about breaks into praise as he reflects on this truth about God's material blessing along with his spiritual blessing. Look at chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things 
at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. This is generosity from God that is without category. It is all-inclusive. All inclusive. This Verse 9 is quoting Psalm 112. Turn to Psalm 112. And we need to see God's abundant provision, his generosity toward those who are righteous. uh, Because it's key to how Paul is thinking here as he urges the Corinthians. Uh, Look at Psalm 112. God's provision for the righteous. How the righteous then, in view of God's provision, live generously. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And then the verse that is quoted, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it. And is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Here in Psalm 112, this is not a promise of unconditional blessing for God's people. This isn't pointless prosperity for us to enjoy for ourselves. This is prosperity from God, graciously supplied, and for a purpose, that we would delight in his commandments and raise up God's family, verse 2, and be like light dawning in the darkness, verse 4, that we would be like God, gracious and merciful and righteous, that we would deal generously and lend and conduct our affairs with justice, that we would indeed distribute freely giving to the poor. And all of that, a life that reflects the enduring righteousness of God. A life of generosity that, verse 1, gives praise to the Lord by pointing others to his provision in our own lives. You guys know about the anti-social social club, right? Clothing brand, the anti-coffee coffee coffee club, you know about that. This is the anti-prosperity, prosperity prosperity club. What Psalm 112 is saying and what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians is that God overwhelmingly supplies. He abundantly provides grace and all the good gifts in life, spiritual and material, not so that we can enjoy prosperity in the prosperity gospel sense, in your two-bedroom apartment, 
but so that you can deal generously, so that you can give freely, so that, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, you can abound in every good work. Our generosity is supplied abundantly by God. We've gloried in the generous grace of Christ this morning. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? What's that? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's not forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were created for good works, not saved by good works, but made a new creation so that you would be a living display of his great grace by your good works. And here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, a display of his abundant provision. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul is saying, everything God has created you for, good works, that for all of the good works of generosity God is calling you to now, he has properly enabled you to and abundantly supplied you with everything you need to fulfill that good work of generosity. And he will always do so. From salvation to continuing grace, to strength for each day, to food on your table, to even more than you need. In the words of this passage, in all things, at all times, God faithfully provides for his people in such abundance, such that as a testament to his generosity, you can with full willingness, with overwhelming joy, decide to meet the needs of those around you because God has supplied you with so much. That's why Jesus' instructions in Matthew 6 make so much sense. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, a generous heart understands that God knows what you need, and he gives you what you need, and then some. And the generous heart knows that, and therefore seeks first the kingdom of God, and then gives generously, and gives unflinchingly, and gives even sacrificially and gives thankfully, knowing God's generous provision in all things, at all times. That brings us to a fourth principle in this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Generosity is an attitude of joyful worship. Generosity is an attitude of joyful worship. Very simply, I want to show you how much Paul emphasizes not just the action of giving, 
just dropping money that makes noise or doesn't make noise into the offering basket. Not just swiping your credit card or putting the numbers in online. Not the action, but the attitude that we are to have as we give. Again, the focus is on the heart. That your heart is to be filled with gratitude and willingness. Therefore, spilling out in joyful worship. Now, the cause of this joyful worship of generosity is no secret. It's the abundant provision we just talked about. But throughout Paul's appeal in these two chapters toward Christian generosity, one of the things that he makes clear throughout, he's careful with the Corinthian church, is that he is not commanding them to give. He's not heavy-handed about this. He's not telling the Corinthians what to do, bossing them around. You see, with Paul, as the Corinthian church proceeds with giving this gift, Paul holds that it must be a truly willing and worshipful gift. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. Again, the Macedonian example. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, Paul says, and beyond their means of their own accord, willingness. Chapter 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul reiterates again, it's not the amount that truly matters. You can and should give what you can from what you have. It's more importantly the willingness that needs to be there. The readiness. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers, these three brothers, to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul is sending Titus and the other two brothers ahead because he knows how the human heart works. It's slow. And so these three brothers will go on ahead and urge the giving and they'll come to a point of willingness, Paul says, Lord willing. And we know they do. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. The verse we all know. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Cheerfulness, willingness, readiness. Not an exaction, but with joy, as worship to God. Not giving him anything he doesn't already have. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the forest is his. He has given us life and breath and everything. We're not giving him back anything he doesn't already own. But to give his worship joyfully, cheerfully. Kent Hughes says this of this verse. Such is the grace of giving. It is not dictated by ability. It has nothing to do with being well off. It is willing. It views giving as a privilege. It is joyously enthusiastic. This is cheerful, joyful sacrifice. 
with the purpose of participating in what God is doing in, other, in ways other than is just in your own life. It's a glad willingness to let go of a source of earthly security for you, to see God's work in the lives of other people. And then together to acknowledge, thankfully, God's provision. You see, this isn't tax deduction, self-satisfaction, make yourself feel better about yourself kind of stuff. That's not the motivation, nor is it the goal. This is bringing forward an offering, willingly, joyfully, worshipfully, so that God might work. This is generosity overflowing from joy in like kind to what God has done already in your life. This is gratitude leading to the joyful, worshipful act of giving. There's one last principle we need to see in this passage, and it's this, that generosity produces much good within God's church. Generosity produces much good within God's church. We've seen so much already in these two chapters that I hope challenges our hearts to grow in godly generosity. But we need to see one more thing as additional motivation and even as expectation as to how God might work through our generosity. And it's the multiplying effect that generosity has on God's people. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You see, not only will God give you what you need and then enough for you to sow generously into the kingdom and into others' lives, but whatever you sow or plant, whatever you give, you will see fruit from. You will reap. You see, the more willing you are to give, the more harvest there will be. But it's not personal harvest. It's a harvest of righteousness in God's people. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see, God will give you enough seed and then multiply that seed and there will be a harvest of righteousness in God's people as we give. It's the kind of bounteous life we saw in Psalm 112. A righteous person amongst God's righteous people. All who are generous displays of God's righteousness. Consider how Paul describes it in verse 11. As you give, you will be enriched in faith to be all that much more generous. And then both the recipients and those like Paul who are encouraging giving and encouraging generosity. All of us, they all will give thanksgiving to God because you were generous. And then look at verses 12 to 14. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Crossroads generosity is a catalyst for worship and for more worship, for givers and recipients, for faithful senders and for missionaries, for members and for leaders, for the rich and for the poor. All of God's people, by generosity, are drawn to rejoice and give thanks to God for his generosity. Christian generosity uses material wealth as the currency for gospel work and for worship. And it's a signpost that points to the gift of true faith, what this passage calls submission to the will of God. That's why Paul says in verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Crossroads, whether this is regular giving, and that is, how to explain that quickly, is it's entrusting your resources to the leadership of our church to be used for the kingdom and to be allocated to those in need that they know of. So whether it's regular giving or it's your own generosity toward others in your life on a regular level, or it's simply right now just beginning to pray and submit your heart to God in this. Live out your gratitude for the generosity of God in your life. Let what's in your heart flow out in generosity, flow out into your life as worship. You see, God's design for generosity is not a laid out sheet of percentages. It's a generous heart. It's a heart open to others. It's a heart that reflects the generosity of the grace of Christ. And it understands the true, the true stewardship we have in everything he's given us. God's design for generosity is that your heart be turned away from the idolatry of money. His design for generosity is that you stop spending just on yourself. It's, it's that your heart be turned away from accumulating earthly riches It's that your heart be turned away from investing only in your own earthly kingdom. And it's that your heart be turned toward giving as Christ gave, ready to see the harvest of righteousness that results in God's people. That is the wealth of generosity. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is addressing immorality but he uses this phrase. He says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the essence of what Paul is saying is similar. Crossroads, what you have is not your own. So glorify God with your resources and see God work to bring the wealth of generosity to his people. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your people. It is with such thankfulness that we look to you and see the many ways that you provide in our lives. First, spiritually in the wealth of the gospel and the generous grace of Christ. And then also, Lord, in so many ways. You have been kind. 
So Father, let our hearts well up in thanksgiving, but let it not stop there. Grow our hearts, even in this season, whatever uh, we have, Father, would we look to you and look to others uh, with generosity in our hearts and grow us much in that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.